0: Welcome to the Mental Disorder Podcast. I'm Jonah Davis, and with me is Ives Parr. Ives is an independent scholar writing about philosophy, economics, and social science. He's particularly known for his work on the science and ethics of genetic enhancement. And I've invited him on the podcast to talk about how new genetic technologies and procedures could play a role in treating or preventing mental illness. Ives, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me on.
0: So most people, when you say genetic enhancement, are probably thinking CRISPR, right? Something along the lines of going in and manually editing the genetic code. But the kind of genetic enhancement that you've been writing about mostly has been a different kind based largely around embryo selection. So can you start by explaining sort of how you see genetic enhancement and what the current state of genetic enhancement looks like?
1: Sure, definitely. I do think that you're correct that CRISPR gene editing is higher in the public consciousness. Uh, Recently in 2018, there was an incident where a scientist actually edited uh, two embryos of young girls, Lulu and Nana. They eventually grew up to become two babies, and this was the first public case of that. And so a lot of people are more familiar with that incident than they are with the current available technology. Uh, The most interesting technology at present is the ability to use polygenic screening. Polygenic screening takes place when a couple is undergoing in vitro fertilization. They want to decide some criteria to select the embryos on the basis of. So most commonly, couples are deciding to select for embryos that are healthier. So, in the recent past, it's been very common that couples undergoing IVF would decide that they want to implant an embryo. And when they were looking into which embryo that they wanted to implant, they would look for a condition called aneuploidy. Aneuploidy is additional chromosomes. Uh, The most common example of this is Down syndrome. People with Down syndrome live very short lives, and they're much more difficult, and they suffer from Uh, cognitive impairment. So generally people want to avoid implanting any embryo that has any form of aneuploidy. Other aneuploidy conditions are also typically pretty bad and most of the time aneuploidy pregnancies actually don't result in um, successfully carrying the child to term. So it's been common practice that couples would do screening for aneuploidy more recent developments and understanding of genetics has allowed couples to also screen for what are called monogenic conditions. Monogenic conditions are when a couple may be concerned about having a disorder associated with a single gene. The single gene, it's possible that one that's uh, recessive or it's dominant. So you could have some cases where uh, future offspring may not have The condition and some offspring may have the condition. Um, A famous example of this is Tay-Sachs disease. So, when couples are deciding if they're at risk of having a child who may suffer from these monogenic disorders, they may be really inclined to want to undergo monogenic screening. So, that's been common, but for quite some time now. But the most recent and exciting development is polygenic screening. This polygenic screening looks at across a larger portion of the genomes and it looks for polygenic traits. So, monogenic is associated with one gene, polygenic is associated with many genes. And so, this allows couples to select on the basis of diseases that are associated with many different genes. These are much more common and more people are at risk of these sort of things. It's more like diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's cancers, and these sorts of conditions. Now, this was only possible due to recent advances in technology that made sequencing and genotyping much less expensive. So now we can actually both study our genome and understand it better and which genes are associated with which conditions. And it's now affordable for couples to biopsy the embryos and have them genotyped to determine whether or not they're at higher or lower risk. And the company that's using that sort of technology currently, that's most prominent, is called Genomic Prediction. And the first baby using that technology was born uh, in summer of 2020, I believe.
0: Is that the baby from that video that uh, you wrote an article about?
1: Mm-hmm. So that baby is Aureus uh, Magrowski, and uh, the video is Rafal and his wife taking care of the baby. More recently, there's also been a public case Malcolm and Simone Collins selected on the basis of both health and psychological well-being. And uh, I also posted uh, about them more recently.
0: One thing that's important to to flag there is the polygenic versus monogenic thing, I think gets a lot of people confused because oftentimes when social scientists or, or geneticists have wanted to say, oh, well, this thing is genetic, you know, like being gay is genetic, or depression is genetic. The retort to that from a lot of people has been, well, you know, where's the gay gene? Or where's the depression gene? It's pretty common to see like science write ups where some journalist is saying, oh, you know, it turns out depression isn't genetic, because there's no depression gene or something, something you see sometimes in the anti psychiatry kind of community, too. And so I think the important thing to understand there is that what's going on is most of these conditions that we care about or that have sort of is the wrong term, but are of social interest are not caused by, first of all, they're not 100% caused by genes, but to the extent that they are, it's going to be many, many, many genes and, and very rarely just one.
1: That's exactly right. People's understanding, sometimes they tend to think in uh, simplistic terms about the genetic architecture of people thinking that, One gene equals one trait, whereas really these traits are very complicated and many genes make small contributions. And the psychological traits such as depression, schizophrenia, other sort of mental disorders, bipolar, would be polygenic traits. And this should go along with what people's intuitive sense of these traits are because I think almost everyone recognizes that. There are levels to this. Some people are very depressed most of the time or have experienced a brief bout of depression. Some people experience more mild depression. The genetic contribution to these traits is polygenic. And so the result is that these traits end up looking like bell curves. They form normal distributions because people tend to fall somewhere in the middle, uh, somewhere in the middle of the average of schizophrenia or propensity for depression, uh, these sorts of things.
0: Right. And so oftentimes when people are, you know, science people are talking about this kind of genetic sort of engineering through embryo selection, they're often talking about traits like IQ, health, and happiness and that kind of thing. But as as you've just said, by the very same logic, right, we could also using this process, make it so that people are able to, if they if they choose to, select an embryo that is less likely to have a mental illness, right? So that could be choosing between these different embryos if they see one is, you know, in the 99th centile for likelihood of having schizophrenia or something like that. That's an extreme example. But maybe even something like anxiety, which is less heritable than the other mental illnesses, but you know, something like that person could then say, okay, I'm not going to choose that embryo to continue with. And instead, I'm going to choose you know, an embryo that has very, very low polygenic risk score for these mental illnesses, right?
1: Right, absolutely. I know that one concern that people have is, say, for example, you're selecting strongly against schizophrenia, you may inadvertently select for depression, or you're selecting against depression, you may inadvertently select for a very anxious person. Now, fortunately, there's more positive pleiotropy. These negative psychological outcomes tend to correlate together. They tend to have shared overlapping genetic architecture, so much so to the extent that some believe that we could characterize psychiatric conditions with a general P-factor. And if we were to select against the P-factor, we could probably reduce uh, the incidence of all mental illnesses And I think most people would agree that that would improve psychological well-being. But they raise uh, specific objections and many concerns to these sorts of interventions that they would not normally raise towards an intervention that would make uh, children psychologically healthier. They're just very concerned about the sort of genetic angle of things. So if you knew that you could reduce your child's risk of psychiatric conditions through breastfeeding, people would have not many objections. They wouldn't say, well, you know, we need kind of crazy people or something like that. I think they would be fully on board. But as soon as you start talking about genes, people get very concerned.
0: Yeah, and we'll talk about the concerns in a bit. But just to uh, stay on the P factor, I think this is a really important and under discussed idea in psychology, and in in sort of mental health more generally, which is, we know that if you so if your father was schizophrenic, or your father was bipolar, or something like that, you know, and you're more likely to be schizophrenic, if he was or bipolar, if he was and things like that, like, that's very well established. People, I think, also intuitively kind of know that they see that in the population, stuff like that. But what we also see is that, All these different kinds of mental illnesses are somewhat genetically related. Sometimes they're weaker or stronger than others, but they all kind of cluster together. The P factor is based on the G factor uh, of intelligence, where all the different kinds of smarts add up to, uh, or not add up, but they all correlate very strongly. We see that with mental illnesses too. What's also interesting is there's been some recent work looking at the D factor, which is a disease factor. And so some people are arguing now that not only do we see mental illnesses all sort of clustering together but uh, also physical illnesses and mental illnesses cluster together and so we can s- sort of say that some people are just sort of more you know unfortunately for genetic reasons more disease prone of of all types now that's on the one hand quite sad because it suggests that you know some people are really getting the short end of the stick in life through no fault of their own you know they're just born being very susceptible to all kinds of mental illnesses or physical illnesses or things like that. On the other hand, it does raise the possibility that if you could select against this, as you're saying, it would actually kind of in one fell swoop be quite easy to make individuals or, you know, individual couples who are, are trying to, you know, prevent their child from having this from, from being mentally or physically unwell, you could very easily select against that and improve the health of those individuals, and then perhaps over time, the population.
1: Yeah, this may be the way to go in terms of marketing is that there's a general overall health factor. And if you just select for overall health, you'll make people mentally healthier, you'll make them physically healthier, and probably have higher average cognitive ability. That may be a good framing as all of those are aspects of health. But the good thing about these sort of positive correlations and these general factors that are... Uh, positive is that it makes the task of selection much easier one concern is like i was saying earlier is you have this sort of antagonistic pleiotropy wherein you try to make someone smart you end up making them very sickly you try to make them healthier you end up making them mentally ill or some concerns like this looks like that's really not a concern and that mostly when you're doing selection, everything, the good things tend to go together, reducing how complex the embryo choice problem is for couples.
0: Yeah, you know, you point out that if you sell it on physical health, that seems much less controversial than selling it on mental health, which is kind of strange, right? Because mental illnesses can be just as debilitating as physical illnesses, right? But for some reason people don't get as upset or I think are less sensitive about most um physical, you know, problems than than mental problems. Like if you say, "Oh, we're going to try and use genetic engineering to outbreed uh diabetes," everybody would say, "Oh, of course, great. That sounds awesome. Who wants diabetes?" But if you said, "Oh, well, you know, we're we're going to try and, and get rid of depression, you know, something like that, ADHD," I mean, I think people there would have a lot more reservations. Maybe Along the lines of I, I identify with my mental illness, and it's in some way a part of me. And I don't like the idea that you are trying to get rid of it. But this is sort of the argument sometimes people let's say with Down syndrome, right, will, will make against these more, you know, basic kinds of embryo screening to get rid of Down syndrome. They say, like, why would anybody want to not be alive just because they're like me, I have a great life. This is this is part of who I am. And, and that kind of thing. So I mean, do you, do you think the cell, if there is a cell, is going to be mostly around physical health or do you think there is a way to make it more palatable around mental illness?
1: I think that people are probably most susceptible to physical health. And I think mostly the sort of monogenic testing and the aneuploidy testing goes largely uncriticized. People don't care necessarily. Now, people care in the case of abortion, but abortion is just much morally different to people than in vitro fertilization. And I don't see huge public backlash for monogenic disorders or aneuploidy. I think that people are hesitant towards polygenic screening for health. And that will be for a while, but I think eventually people will fully accept that. And I think that there'll be high rates of acceptance for that. Now, Things like mental health, I think people will also be largely receptive to, but I think there'll be some concerns about improving cognitive ability and maybe changing personality to some extent. I think that people form their identity around their personality and trying to mess with that is kind of concerning. There's a stigma around the association between psychological traits and genetics that makes people feel very uneasy. But I think eventually this technology will be totally embraced and will hopefully be considered a very ethical thing to do. I think that mental illness may, will probably not be too, face too much backlash if it's stuff like schizophrenia, depression, or anxiety. Hopefully parents are receptive to that. And I think that selection against those traits will actually be more important than selection for physical health. Because a lot of the diseases that a company like genomic prediction is selecting against have late onset. Uh, You know, you don't experience Alzheimer's until you're quite old or you're not necessarily getting prostate cancer until you're quite old. Whereas uh, these sort of psychological conditions can come early. You can become schizophrenic early on. You can experience depression and anxiety early on. And I would think that these sort of conditions reduce welfare more than physical illness, except for in extreme cases. So I think selection against mental disorders is a moral priority, more important than selection against physical health, although people will be more receptive to the physical health stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, one kind of counter example I, I could kind of think of there is there seem to be some mental disorders uh, I mean, maybe that's the wrong word, but um, take something like psychopathy, right? Like psychopathy seems to be quite a successful kind of strategy in some cases, not in all cases, right? If you were born a psychopath, and you're surrounded by people who are not psychopaths, who are just kind of pleasant and, and nice and that kind of thing, for the most part, I think you could probably prey on them quite easily. I mean, psych- psychopathy, I think is usually something like 1% of the population, Right. And I think it's kind of stayed around that number consistently because that sort of seems to be like an equilibrium number. So, you know, I mean, I wonder if that's an example of a trait where people might, uh, keeping, keeping that trait might, you know, confer some advantages to the people who have it over not having it. I mean, what do you, what do you think of that?
1: Yeah. There's a, there's a problem where like, if you genetically engineer everyone to be nice and they're more susceptible to being taken advantage of and sort of you have to be creating people such that they are not, um, well, like your individual choices about your children, your future offspring and their traits, their personality and so forth is going to be dependent on society at large. There's a lot of these sort of game theoretical issues that uh, the author uh, Jonathan Anomaly addresses in a book called Creating Future People. A little bit unrelated, but... So another point about this is, for example, height in men. Women tend to prefer men that are taller than them, and they tend to prefer the taller of the men, generally speaking. But if you were to genetically engineer everyone to be taller and taller and taller, it's this sort of runaway problem where people end up being way too tall, physically unhealthy, and so forth. Now, if you were to make everyone as nice as possible you would open yourself up to sort of exploitation by people who are psychopaths. A point about, like, should we intentionally make people somewhat psychopathic if it confers, like, an advantage in some cases? I think maybe we could capture the advantage of certain psychological traits without having the necessary downsides because the human genetic architecture is so complex it's so multi uh it has so many dimensions to it, that we may be able to have sort of the ruthless, hardworking person who's trying to get to the top, but also make them really not prone to sort of violence. Like, I don't think necessarily the correlation between, oh, we accidentally create, we want CEOs, we want leaders of industry, Right. Uh, we don't want uh, serial killers, psychopaths that take advantage of other people. I think that the genetic architecture of people is complex enough that at some point we will be kind of finally navigating through this space and we will be able to create people that are very driven but not prone to violence, not prone to hurting other people and that sort of thing.
0: Right, so so eventually you get the ability to distinguish between the sociopath and the psychopath. And, you know, you can say, okay, if the CEO and his wife, uh, they want to, you know, have a sociopath kid, like, okay, that makes sense. But uh, you know, we don't want that to go too far.
1: Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, f- I don't recall the distinction.
0: Oh, the I mean, it's a, um, it's not a like DSM distinction. It's just a distinction people who are more in the forensic world would use. But a psychopath and a sociopath would sort of temperamentally be the same but the sociopath uh, is not going to be violent physically and is more likely to sort of work within the confines of of systems versus trying to like destroy or break down the systems
1: okay okay so this which one works within the system
0: like a, a sociopath oh, okay
1: yeah yeah the, that's it's a good point because there's going to be a lot of trade-offs and collective action problems as it gets more fine-grained. So currently, the company Genomic Prediction, they'll provide all the information, but they reduce everything down to a single score, maximizing the expected life years of uh, a disability-adjusted expected life years, and they give you an embryo health score. So you can make an easy decision, pick the healthiest embryo, essentially. But when we get into, oh, what about personality and Uh, What about all these trade-offs between cognitive ability, uh, psychological well-being, physical health? It will become quite complicated, and it may not be exactly an easy question. And when you add the extra element of what about the game theory of considering what other people are going to do, consider what your future society is going to look like, it gets extremely complicated, but it's going to be very, very important that we make good decisions about these sort of questions like same again, you know, it may call for regulation of some kind to prevent defecting in these sort of game theoretic scenarios. Like I was saying earlier, like you don't want people making their boys taller and taller and taller, this sort of runaway uh problem. Uh, So it's gonna be very it's gonna be very complicated and but simultaneously important to consider all these factors. And the better the technology becomes at distinguishing between different traits and the better we get at editing or selecting, the better our choices can become and the more fine-grained those decisions can become.
0: One thing that I think is interesting is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that scoring highly on happiness, mental well-being, physical health, is also correlated with religiosity, right? So it's also, I mean, it's also correlated with uh, like conservatism. You can see in, in a lot of data that conservatives are just across sort of a, you know, a bunch of different well-being questions tend to be happier and healthier, especially mentally healthier. Do you think that getting rid of some of these sort of negative health and mental health traits and making people just sort of psychologically more healthy is going to push society in a more religious or potentially conservative direction?
1: That's an interesting question. Uh, I think it's possible that it could do that, yeah. Um, But I'm not for certain. I think it'll be interesting if we're increasing cognitive ability to a large extent, what that sort of conservatism looks like I think higher cognitive ability is correlated with more um, openness to uh, like economic liberalism and libertarianism, as well as sort of free speech. It's possible that we inadvertently create people more receptive to a sort of libertarian thinking.
0: Like a live and let live kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Also, I think... Yeah, it'll be interesting once we get into personality because if you were to have really extremely high openness uh children, you they may be more progressive or something like that. Yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting question and I wonder I would hope that progressive parents wouldn't or atheist parents wouldn't be so concerned about uh the possibility of their child being religious that they would um give them more mental health conditions or something like that
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i don't that's that would be a weird uh twister there well it's also something along the lines of um i mean maybe religiosity at that level for those kinds of couples is going to mean something a bit different than we think about like i mean because we're thinking about it mostly in terms of like you know judaism christianity or something like that and i kind of wonder like if you Uh, I don't know, maybe if you put people who are in a very secular liberal uh, context uh, or, you know, they're born into that context, but they're just super mentally, you know, happy and stable. Like maybe they just become more religious progressives, but in kind of a, instead of, you know, I mean, maybe in a more classical liberal way, like maybe that is kind of the, the result.
1: Do you think like uh, the relationship is that you have a person that's psychologically healthy and they're more receptive to religion or do you think that people who are uh, people who are religious, it has an environmental effect where they become happier? Maybe a mechanism of that is like you see the world as more just, you feel like God's looking out for you, you believe in an afterlife that you're going to be saved, and this sort of helps you cope with the absurdity of the world. I mean, I'm not sure exactly, it's probably both, but do you have an opinion on that?
0: Like I, I have a, I have no evidence for this, but I have like a pet theory that religious people who are religious in are maybe in part that way because they just feel like happier inside and they feel like the universe it makes more sense and is more just. I mean, I remember um, William Lane Craig, who's a philosopher, uh, sort of a, a Christian apologetics philosopher, who was, was, was great. Um, I mean, I remember him talking about how of all the different arguments in favor of the existence of God or the resurrection of Jesus or something, you know, the thing that anchors his faith is just that he can feel God's love like in his heart, you know, and I, like, I, I have no, I have no idea what that feels like, but I've met quite a few different, you know, people who are religious who just say they have this like feeling of, Oh, I feel God's love or something like, and I, I so I, I do think that perhaps like, I mean, I either, I'm wrong about metaphysics and, and they really are feeling God's love. Or part of that psychology is just kind of an, an ease and a, a peace with the world um, that you can really feel and and that maybe kind of boils over into a lot of these other ideas from religion making sense to them. That's just my sort of lay theory. I don't have a, a strong uh theory.
1: Yeah, interesting. I think maybe like it might be a case that like we've obviously I won't say obviously, but it seems like we've been selected in some sense to be religious. Like it's extremely common across the world, the phenomenon of believing in gods or uh, one God or believing in sort of supernatural entities and this sort of thing. It's like so extremely common that you can make a plausible case that the healthier people, the people who are more religious survived. And so there was selection for that, and that sort of a healthy, normal person is actually religious. And that Mm. if you have a large number of sort of uh, mutations or rare variants, then you end up being like psychologically uh, unwell, like not as not as happy, and simultaneously not religious. Like I think maybe uh, Ed Dutton uh, has some thinking on this issue, but I don't know
0: exactly. That makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of when they look at things like health or well-being, and they look at it sort of by the different types of, relig- you know, religiosity or whatever, you see that the people who are doing the best are usually those who subscribe to like a real religion, you know, they're Christian, they're Jewish, they're Muslim or something like that. And it's interesting because you can see that there's, you know, these people who are like nuns, right? They don't really subscribe to anything. Or, or they'll say they're sort of spiritual, but not religious, right? Which is like what a lot of people of uh, our generation, Gen Z, say. Like with, with that kind of worldview, you still maybe be believing in supernatural things, or you're still maybe believing in spirits or deities of some kind, but it, it doesn't have the social component to go with it. And like, you don't, I don't think those beliefs bring those people the same psychological benefits, or, or you know, it could be the other way around, but... Um, yeah, I don't think it's enough to just believe in, say, uh, pagan metaphysics or something. I do think part of it is like the psychology of this person is going to church. Like maybe there's a social aspect to it that's that's pretty important. Interesting thoughts.
1: Yeah, I've noticed like many people who are not actually Christian or have adhered to religion are very interested in crystals, uh, the power <laughs> yeah, oh of crystals God, yeah. or something like that. Or they're interested in astrology and they take it quite seriously which maybe that gets neglected to be considered in these sorts of theories or something like that. One thing that's interesting to me is many people who would be receptive to the idea that the the time period you're born, like the month you're born, like determines your personality, but, you know, your genes have no influence and that's a pseudoscientific idea.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's very true. Uh, it, it, it's funny because I just, um, so in, in Toronto here, there's a street called Queen Street, which is like kind of a funky downtown street. And I, I walked through there the other day. And like every every other store is either like a crystal store or a weed store or a magic mushroom store or a bar. You know? <laughs> and I was like, I basically was like, okay, this is like some kind of religious thing going on, right? Like clearly, these these are clearly, you know, feeding into the same customer base of like, kind of spiritual, new-agey people. Rabbi David Wolpe, he said something along the lines of, um, you know, spiritual, like if you're a spiritual person, like you're just having an an individual experience, right? But religion is you're having a collective experience. And so maybe there's some aspect to that in terms of a more collectivist psychology, which could, could have maybe pros and cons at a societal level in the sense of a pro is that, people are going to feel better, they're going to be happier, they're going to maybe do more things together. But then if you're the kind of person who's sort of skeptical of, not collective action per se, but you, you, you tend to believe that when people get together in groups like Ella George Carlin, that they're at their worst versus individuals at their best, then maybe that's bad politically.
1: Yeah, in, in, interesting. Yeah, It's it's hard to know the sort of driving force because I think a lot of it is like modern progressivism, modern values are kind of antithetical to true religious values. Like I think Christianity and since the Bible is so, such a large book that is written by many different authors, there's different contradicting statements and you can kind of come up with whatever interpretation that sounds plausible, but obviously there's sort of prohibitions on like homosexuality and uh, premarital sex and this sort of thing. And these are really out of line with current progressive norms and the norms around sexuality. And so maybe it's just pushback against that. It's not, maybe that's why these people who would be spiritual just reject the sort of ideology um, and sort of male-dominated, male-centered attitudes about uh so sort of Missiveness of wives and that sort of thing.
0: Well, you brought up homosexuality. So I had another question for you that's related to that, which is that we know that homosexuality is also, you know, entangled in this P factor, right? So it correlates with other mental illnesses um, and things like that. So does left-handedness and all these things. There's, there's these kind of, you know, clusters of sort of traits that are maybe, well, abnormal, right? And so, I'm wondering, do you think that as people become more and more, or, or sorry, as, as people select more and more for psychological well-being, they're going to select against being, you know, homosexual? Like, I don't think they're going to do that on purpose. But is the end result more likely that we'll have fewer gay or lesbian people being born?
1: Interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that uh, aspect of it. I didn't know that it was part of the P factors, both
0: male and female homosexuality. Uh that's a good question. I I I will double check that, but my guess is probably just male. Oh, I mean, I don't know. That's Yeah, it's a good question. I I got to double check that.
1: That's interesting. So like I guess for those unfamiliar, like homosexuality is both environmentally and genetically influenced. If you take twins that are raised in the same environment, the uh, they are not always both homosexual or heterosexual. Sometimes these uh, identical twins are different in their sexuality. It's hard to come up with an exact explanation of how that could be unless there was an environmental influence. Like homosexuality is an interesting trait because most people are pretty what you call blank slatus. They don't believe that traits are psychologically influenced except for sexuality, except for transgenderism, this sort of thing but yeah so it's both environmentally and genetically influenced so if it is a part of the p factor and people are selecting against that then i think it's possible that you would reduce the number of people that were inclined to become like homosexual and maybe your numbers would uh maybe your numbers of people would fall uh perhaps like inadvertently now it it kind of depends like how much overlap there is in the genetic architecture so if you have like tr- uh genes that are associated with uh certain negative outcomes but also homosexuality then maybe people will decide against those like selecting against those sort of genes if you have genes that are just associated with homosexuality maybe people wouldn't want to uh, select against that it's probably pretty complicated now like is this is this morally good uh, necessarily Like, i think that parents would do well to select children that they expect to live the best lives possible and be you know contribute to society in a good way and not harm other people and that's a good guiding moral principle uh, for them now if we had like yeah, I mean, I suppose that's kind of controversial. I don't know if it's like beneficial to have no non same sex couple. Is like the benefit of being heterosexual is you can have offspring that's related to you, and that's probably pretty
0: nice for most people. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think about that? Uh, I mean, I think that all makes sense. I, it does strike me as something that whether it's like because because I'm pretty I'm pretty sure there's an article that. That that has the genetic correlations. I can't remember who did it. it. Might have been Emil Kierkegaard or somebody, but it definitely is correlated. Um, I think I think this is male homosexuality is correlated with you know other kinds of mental illnesses, and I mean it it, it shows up all the time in in these statistics people put out that show that oh you know people who are LGBT or something have higher suicide rates or have higher rates of mental illness and things like that. I mean it makes sense because there is a genetic correlation. It's it's nothing to laugh about or anything, but my thinking is that if people like were to learn that this is going to be a side effect, I mean, it could sort of stigmatize the practice, right? And it strikes me as something that people who wanted to stigmatize the practice, if they found out about this, could could quite easily sort of latch onto. And again, you know, with the, like with the Down syndrome case, or the depression case, you know, you might have people who are saying, no, this is part of, like, sort of psychological diversity. And, you know, we don't, uh, we don't uh, think it's good that society is trying to you know, on purpose or not phase out this kind of, you know, people like me. I mean, that's what they would say.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it, it's plausible that that would be sort of a side effect, maybe intentionally for some or inadvertently that it would kind of select against this uh, to some extent. It's interesting to like compare environmental interventions. For example, if you knew that, giving your child a pill would make them heterosexual or make them homosexual or, you know, not exposing them to certain material would make them heterosexual or homosexual. Should we, would we judge parents who do one or the other, that sort of thing? Should we judge parents who do one or the other? I think it's important to also like make environmental comparisons to consider what's ethical and maybe to have consistent standards for are thinking about environment and are
0: thinking about genetics. Well, you know the thinking about psychological diversity in general. I mean, to me, to me, this brings up kind of an interesting question, which is that I think that uh, I think that people with mental illness who are, you know, I mean, I guess it depends on what statistics you believe, but if you take sort of the ones at face value, like let's say twenty percent of the population, you know, have some kind of mental um illness or something like that. Um, I think they add a lot of cultural, you know, sort of richness, right? So you think about artists like Van Gogh, Ian Curtis of Joy Division, Woody Allen, like people who are anxious or depressed or, you know, I mean I mean I think even Van Gogh is, you know, psychotic or whatever. But these people I think add a lot of richness to society, to culture. They look at things in a different way than psychologically healthy people do. I mean, I have to say, like, personally for myself, I would find life so boring if people who didn't have similar experiences to me weren't creating culture and weren't, you know, putting out works that looked at the world in a more depressed way. People who are psychologically healthy, they too often appreciate those kinds of works. And so, it, it you know, it kind of makes me think, like, by doing this, by by curing, you know, or preventing uh, mental illness at a sort of population-wide level, is there going to be a kind of leveling of, of culture? And are things going to get more boring? I don't know. Do we lose something, perhaps, when we do not have the same psychological diversity um, interpreting the society around us?
1: Yeah, I think, like, psychological diversity will be important, it's an interesting question like what extent is like creativity and interesting cultural contributions dependent on this sort of unusual thinking and how much it's actually driven by the mental illness versus how much it's sort of a personality or extreme outlier personality trait uh, so there's uh there's an interesting article by Jonathan Anomaly Christopher Jillingall and Julian Savulescu called Great Minds Think Different, Preserving Cognitive Diversity in the Age of Gene Editing that sort of discusses why we need, like we can't all psychologically be the same. There's some benefits to having people that think differently. I think an important question is how much is these great intellectual contributions, how much are they dependent on psychological suffering to some extent? We would hope that maybe They just have very different personality differences and that you could just select for different personality differences and the result could be that you get geniuses who make interesting creative contributions while not suffering necessarily from depression or anxiety. Uh, It may be important for some people, when you have like super geniuses sometimes that make... Really important intellectual contributions sometimes they're really weird, and is an interesting discussion about uh whether or not is that's like necessary or is it a consequence of their intelligence i don't think it's a consequence of the high intelligence. I think that being intellectually weird predisposes you towards creative and intellectual success and I think that maybe like for example, if you have someone that's so very strange that they don't spend they don't have any friends and they don't have uh, a girlfriend or boyfriend and they spend all all their time on mathematics or something like that they may be way more likely to make a breakthrough contribution to mathematics do we want that sort of thing and can we avoid if it is necessary you know it's 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 a very it's very difficult i think if we allow for reproductive autonomy fully we're going to see a diversity where parents who are more similar mate with each other and then have offspring that are more similar to them and hopefully the interesting creative intellectual genius sort of contributions are dependent on personality rather than actually experiencing sort of suffering and the other issues hopefully uh, it's so multidimensional that we can get what we want out of it without actually having people experience difficult lives. I, I'm not sure
0: if that addressed your point. No, that, that does. And that's interesting because I also think that maybe if you have just a mentally healthier population, the audience for that kind of cultural content is also just going to drop like significantly, right? So like... Maybe if there's less sad people, there's going to be less Kurt Cobains who are like making a lot of money off of uh, sad music, because people don't want to listen to sad music. Or if they do, they want to listen to like a very, very, you know, mild kind of sadness or something like that. And perhaps as the kinds of cultural creators just are less and less there, because there's just fewer of them, so too will go the audience and, you know, nobody will be complaining. Like, I mean, in the end, there'll just be a world where everybody's listening to, uh, you know, pop music, and they're watching fun, happy movies, but like, nobody's upset about that or, or nobody cares, right? Maybe the problem solves itself.
1: Yeah, I, I think it'll be a long time before everyone is a product of genetic enhancement. Like, it that would take a very, very long time. And then we would probably see like if it really is a sort of, I think maybe if we need more sad people, maybe you could use environmental interventions, but I don't <laughs> think people would be receptive because like one concern is like, you could say, well, we need more like sad artists or something like that. Maybe we could, people are too healthy nowadays. Maybe we could, you know, expose them to chemicals that distort their mood or, give them brain damage and make them act crazy or something like that. But I don't think anyone would be receptive to that sort of thing. I don't know. What do you think about that idea? Yeah,
0: that's, that seems wrong. Um, I, I I mean, I could imagine, I could imagine some people doing it voluntarily, but not, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think, I think more it's, it's just going to be along the lines of, People will stop caring. I mean, you know, maybe there'll just be fewer like Dostoevsky's and people like that, but there'll be fewer people who want to read, you know, novels like that. So
1: I think I think that uh, like I mean, that artificial intelligence is getting so very good that I think it's plausible. We can just automatically create any sort of media that you want. Like, I think you could go to mid journey and generate sad pictures all day long or sad novel and maybe it'd be extremely high quality
0: in the near future. Okay well, something to look forward to. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me let me ask you about this then because so what if there's somebody who they know about this technology and then this is in the current year you know they know about this technology they're interested you know in making sure their child has good traits or whatever. But they want their child to be anxious or depressed like they are. And the reason they want that is because they want to be able to relate to their kid, right? They, they want that kid to have similar experiences as they did. You know, they want them to sort of grasp the, the sadder side of life because that will sort of help them relate to the parent. And even though they know it's not necessarily in the best mental health interests of their kid, they see it almost as like a personality thing or character trait. It it strikes me as something that a lot of people, even as they are concerned about mental illness and mental health, might consider doing because I think increasingly we identify with our our mental illness or issues, right? We say, oh, it's it's part of our identity. It's also part of our culture. I think increasingly that seems true versus it being something you you hide, you don't tell anybody else about. So I'm wondering if that will be something that people want to do. And if so, I mean, is that wrong? Is that morally reprehensible? What do you think? I think that's morally wrong. I think that
1: probably no, it's probably unlikely that a clinic would provide that service for you to have a child that suffers more. You know, I think it's kind of akin to like if a person was, Uh, Violently abused as a child, they want to violently abuse their child. Maybe it's not quite akin to that, but I try to think in terms of analogies with environmental comparisons. So I'll propose a counter thought experiment and imagine that a couple wanted a child that experienced depression and anxiety to relate to. By the luck of the genetic lottery, the child was born extremely psychologically healthy you think it'd be ethical for the parents to make the child's life bad sort of inflict treatment on them that would make them anxious and make them depressed you know maybe not allow them to have friends physically hurt them verbally abuse them or do any sort of uh that sort of thing to better relate to them
0: yeah i mean I agree. It doesn't seem right. And a real life example that's sort of similar to that, not quite the same is, um, so, you know, um, deaf people, right, especially as kids, they have these things called cochlear implants, which basically give some deaf kids the ability to hear. And if a deaf kid grows up with those cochlear implants, then they will basically be able to live life as a normal person, they don't need to Learn sign language, although many do, but you know you're basically going through life like a hearing individual, and there are some people in the deaf community who are really against these cochlear implants for kids and well for anybody, and the reason they give is that they say, well, deafness is its own culture, its own community, sign language is its own language, and if we have a technological solution to this problem, then we are going to lose that culture and lose that community and I think for me, from the outside, looking inside at, at that community, I think that seems cruel. I think that you know how could you ever want to deny someone the ability to hear fully functionally just for the preservation of you know your group? But I really do think that a lot of these groups they just naturally kind of have this this group mentality where they maybe they're united around a defect or a flaw or a problem, but they want to preserve that, and they don't want that to go away and they've sort of come to identify with it and don't like other people telling them that it's something that needs to be done away with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. There was a case uh, a long time ago that was often discussed among bioethicists where a, a lesbian couple, both of them were deaf. They wanted to have a deaf child. And so they intentionally selected a donor with congenital deafness. They ended up having one child that was deaf, I believe. And then they had a second one The second child actually ended up being discovered, and it got media attention, and that's when it was debated. The second child actually ended up being able to hear a little bit, and they said that they needed to give him, uh, they needed to start teaching him English, or or give him the cochlear implant or something along those lines in order for him to properly develop speaking and hearing successfully. And I think they intentionally decided not to give it to him. in my mind, that's unethical to deprive him of that environmental intervention, but I also think it was unethical of the couple to intentionally have a child, that they wanted to be deaf. I know some bioethicists disagree, like I like Julian Sabulescu, but I believe he defended their right on the grounds of reproductive autonomy. They decided to choose a donor that they knew the child would end up deaf with. but. Julian Savulescu, interestingly, believes that or I believe created a principle called procreative beneficence that he believes among the available embryos, you should pick the one that to experience the best life. But he also believed in reproductive autonomy and he believed that 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 uh, couple had the right to have that child and that having that child is not immoral because the child in a counterfactual world, wouldn't have experienced anything whatsoever, like they wouldn't have existed otherwise. So no harm was brought upon the child. But in my view, I think that's kind of an irrational preference. I can understand why someone would want that. But I think that makes the child's life difficult. And it doesn't prevent them from actually learning sign language and communicating with the deaf community. But it does ensure that they can't communicate with other people. I think that level of sort of desire is is too far, and I think it reduces the well-being of that child. It is obviously a disability because you have less ability to do things, and we have accommodations in place to take care of people that have disabilities as such. I don't think that people should feel bad for having them, but I think that when we're creating people, we should want to create people that have Uh, experience high welfare. And once again, I'll analogize, like if a couple were to select an embryo they expected to be deaf, it's not quite equivalent, but morally I think that's somewhat like intentionally deafening your child um, when others that are not deaf are available. So inflicting that environmental deprivation on the child is somewhat like that. I think it's very clearly immoral and most will recognize that, you know, taking out your child's eardrums is morally wrong, but I think also for similar reasons, it's not quite equivalent, but intentionally having a deaf child is also not morally good. I think it's it's wrong to
0: do that. Right. Well, let's conclude by talking a bit about a, a different topic, which is effective altruism in mental health, which is something that I'm kind of interested in. I, I find with effective altruism, there's kind of a, like a well-being paradox that I feel, which, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what you think, but it seems like the ultimate goal of, you know, effective altruism is to kind of maximize global well-being. But whenever I see like EA people doing some kind of program or funding some kind of thing, that is literally just to make people happier. It, it seems wrong or ineffective to me. So, for example, there was a, a big study that got put on the EA forum um, that uh, that giving African women group therapy made them happier than cash transfers, bed nets, or deworming. Um, but like when when I read that, I sort of thought, well, like you know, even if that's true, shouldn't isn't aren't cash transfers or bed nets or deworming better? is well-being really what we should be focused on um, in terms of helping people in in third world countries? But then at the same time, the whole point of effective altruism, as I understand it, is sort of to maximize, you know, well-being. That seems to be kind of how they view it. So, I don't know, it, it seems a bit odd to me. What, what, what do you think? What exactly
1: seems odd about it? Like, uh, improving welfare seems not as important as something like saving
0: lives, in your view? Yeah, I guess. I guess so. I mean, it seems to me like if you have a bunch of money and the goal of the, the goal is to spend it, you know, in a way that's going to improve welfare as much as possible, like, it, to me, it seems you would want to go for some kind of objective over subjective welfare. Um, like, you know, people have fewer, I mean, fewer people die or people are, have less worms versus, you know, people feel better. But i mean is that is that wrong? am I just misunderstanding like e a no i I think it's an interesting idea. I think one thing that's yeah, it's difficult to
1: determine an objective standard like maybe lives saved if you could calculate that, it seems more tangible, whereas maybe people are very skeptical about the improvements in psychological health, the measurements for these sorts of things uh are they actually reliable, and what does that actually translate to? it becomes difficult to make these sort of comparisons because EA and organizations like GiveWell kind of have to. They have to say how much money transferred is worth a life, how much is a life at age 2, age 3, age 4, age 5, how much is a life worth at age 70, Uh, how much is a physically disabled life worth in comparison. I think all these sort of nasty comparisons that people don't actually want to make Are necessary if you want to do a moral calculation. I think that how much we should care about saving a life versus how much we should care about improving psychological well being depends on the average level of psychological well being of the lives that we're saving. So if you think that the people whose lives are saved by these things actually have a great deal of happiness in their lives and they're wonderful. Uh then, maybe saving a life is much, much more important, whereas if you think maybe their lives are very bad and it's you know maybe not it's not good that they uh were to die, but it's not a huge major issue because their lives are so difficult, so bad, so much suffering, then maybe you'd think that, oh, maybe therapy is a better sort of intervention. I think that's a really hard question, and you know. Will McCaskill uh, addresses this question in his recent book, What We Owe the Future. It's kind of difficult to figure out how many people live lives that are not worth living, how much time people spend happy versus sad, and how to exactly calculate and make these sorts of comparisons. And so I can imagine someone being more um, receptive to objective measurements, objective
0: criteria, like life saved. I guess you're right. Comparing it seems very difficult, right? Like if you could you know, how many how many people to make a little bit happier or even a lot happier is equivalent to a life. I guess I mean I think logically what you're saying about evaluating different quality of lives differently does make sense. Although I mean, even for me that that feels wrong to uh evaluate that way. But yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it's 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 odd because I mean I I I think mental health treatment and making people happier is very important, and I think it's a great thing to do. But at the same time, I can't help think it should be way down the list compared to many of these other kinds of of goods that that could be given through charity or something like that. Um, Maybe maybe there's an argument that if you improve people's mental health, then they're going to become more self-sufficient and take care of themselves or something like that. which is probably true, you know, at least to some degree for some people. Um, so maybe that's where the argument, you know, comes from. But I mean, to me, it's it seems like uh, almost like almost luxurious that people would spend money on on that instead of, you know, other programs. But yeah, I guess it's hard to compare these things.
1: I think that GiveWell does a ranking of different charities and usually the top is anti-malaria uh nets or medicine and uh like vitamin a and other sort of measures that are life-saving and prevent uh starvation or nutrient deprivations things like that that are s- sort of more focused on that i think those typically come out as the top charities as the most important priorities i think most people are pretty receptive to that idea and that The EA Forum is kind of a place for exploring different ideas, making comparisons of trade offs. And there's a lot of kind of very odd, different approaches to ethics and exploration. I think it's a community that enjoys entertaining possible avenues of improving welfare and that sort of thing. But probably most would agree with you that something like malaria nets that save lives are actually a higher. Moral priority, and just an example of sort of the absurdity, or maybe, or the openness, I should say, is that I've seen a post on the A forum about the welfare of uh, skin skin mites. I think it was like uh, bugs that are on your skin. Yeah, and you know, how do we compare this to human welfare? Is kind of a crazy question that is not necessarily uh, not worth entertaining, but is could be actually important when we get to, well, how many pigs or how many monkeys or how many cows are worth one human life, how many, and making all these sorts of comparisons between welfare, because depending on the math, exactly how you cut it, different uh, animals or different groups of people could be more important in terms of their welfare and improving their welfare. And I'm, I enjoy like, I think it's a good idea to continue
0: entertaining a bunch of different, uh, interesting ideas. If you're thinking about it from an effective altruism, you know, standpoint, I mean, do you think it makes sense to spend money on, on mental health treatment? So here I'm thinking, you know, mostly like, um, therapy for people or you know antidepressants and things like that i mean these are treatments that people in the in the first world are are getting and they cost i mean not that much money spent on them compared to other kinds of health treatments a small amount but still i mean you know it makes me think is this an effective you know use of this money to raise people's well-being by you know a bit And obviously, it's quite variable with some people, they go from zero to 100. But most people, you know, I mean, on average, you move up like a little bit with these treatments. So sometimes I wonder if, like in in the case with Africa versus cash transfers and bed nets and things like that, if mental health at all, it it should be high on the list. Not that it is high, but I mean, maybe it should be even lower, like maybe whatever money there is that we have, is mostly better spent on, on other kinds of interventions or other kinds of things. Now, I know you don't know a lot about you know mental health spending or anything like that, but just curious. I mean, how do you see sort of mental health care like in a first world country from an EA kind of standpoint of well being and and that kind of thing? I'm not sure like how effective uh, the therapy
1: is in comparison, like how much it increases welfare. And even if I knew like the gap between someone who has depression and who's being treated versus who's not being treated i'm not sure if i could it'd be difficult to make a comparison uh, to overall welfare to see like how much that's worth necessarily but if we're really thinking most effective for people in the current time then probably it is not effective to use it uh to improve mental welfare in western societies also, it's probably much cheaper to like, get therapists into developing countries or pay them there. Um, mm. Yeah. My biggest concerns in terms of effective altruism now is existential risks, things that would destroy the world and be a total catastrophe or everyone getting killed. Or, those are really, really bad. And so those are what I think are the
0: priorities now. You're like, okay, so you're like an x risk guy. I think, mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know for me, like I, um, it's funny. There's a lot about effective altruism I like, and then there's a lot that doesn't make sense to me, but I really felt distanced from it with the recent kind of X-risk and especially and, and long-termism focus. I just thought like, guys, I thought we were supposed to be doing bed nets and deworming and like helping people with really basic, simple things just scaled massively. and. Now it just seems like this whole other thing. So, but I, you know, I I guess to each his own and, and people, you know, view things differently. I mean, it's maybe I'm just not uh, as like attuned to the real X risks and stuff that I, as I should be. And if I were to, you know, talk to people, I would realize why that's actually more important than these, you know, well-being concerns. I think it's like
1: the like psychology of people who want to do bed nets and the psychology of people who are worried about like artificial intelligence takeoff speeds (laughs) is really different (laughs) like these are very separate groups kind of not necessarily totally separate but i think yeah it's just attracting very different groups of people like each area like animal welfare people are probably pretty different from people who are concerned about bed nets and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's odd sort of diverse group. But I want to convince people that the genetic enhancement technology is very important, the EAs, that it's very important because we can sort of eliminate... Uh, we could breed animals in factory farms that would not suffer. We could maybe create wild animals that don't suffer whatsoever. Maybe they could actually experience extreme levels of happiness in the farms and in wild animals. We could create people that live extremely long lives, that are extremely intelligent and extremely happy, and that could pave the way to major intellectual breakthroughs. And I think we're on the cusp of having technology that would enable that sort of thing, like in vitro gametogenesis, the ability to create eggs for fertilization in a laboratory and gene editing to totally uh, make major changes to genomes of future people that if we make these breakthroughs, then the whole world's going to change. It's going to change for the better. And we should try to bring that about faster. But that's an under-discussed area. People don't really talk about that much.
0: Yeah. Well, I have been following this stuff for a while, and I'm very optimistic about it. And especially, honestly, for mental illness, because I think one thing that still people have not wrapped their heads around enough is that mental illness, to a large extent, especially bad mental illnesses, are really quite genetic. And the narrative that we're sold about trauma—it's uh, it, not that trauma isn't bad. It's not that trauma isn't can't make people unhappy or can't you know make someone go into a depression or something like that. I'm not suggesting that trauma is terrible, but we have to focus more on the genetic aspect because that is really doing a lot of the heavy lifting, especially for some of the worst illnesses. So I've, I'm I'm glad there's people like you out there who are writing uh, on this topic and who are trying to push for a better future, a healthier, uh, happier future. Where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on Substack at Parisia,
1: P-A-R-R-H-E-S-I-A.substack.com. You can find me there. Uh, That's pretty much the only place. I'm not really active on Twitter or anything like that. So check out my stuff there. And I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, no, thank you.